All right. Hello, everyone. The basic premise of this call-in episode, and of course I thank you, as always, for joining, is for you, the listeners slash callers slash whatever, to tell me why I am wrong or misguided or uh, overly hysterical in having extremely serious concerns at the moment about escalation of this Ukraine situation for reasons that I would think uh, should be obvious, but may not be to some. And when I talk about escalation, just to be clear, I don't necessarily mean the imposition of a no-fly zone, which really would be the absolute worst case scenario, right? At least if your priority is to avoid such escalation, because I think the uh, it's pretty clear at this point, and it's been clearly stated at this point, that a no-fly zone would constitute uh, more or less direct declaration of war on Russia and would entail the U.S., you know, enforcing that no-fly zone by potentially shooting down Russian aircraft, right? I mean, that should have been known before even some of these demands for a no-fly zone were issued. Uh, But I think that's probably been now fairly extensively explained as the implication of a no-fly zone. And while it's true that you have those calls for the worst-case scenario uh, growing as the days goes bu- days go by, um, so it's not like it's a totally fringe view. Um, I do think that there are potential other avenues for serious escalation that aren't being adequately considered that are separate and apart or not that's, uh, directly connected to the no-fly zone, and I want to go over a couple of those. Uh, I guess as a preface, I would just note that, yes, as I alluded to, more and more people are calling straight up for the no-fly zone, including the New York Times pu- publishing an op-ed today. It was its you know feature, featured op-ed on the homepage, um, assuming it ran prominently in the physical newspaper as well, but this was a an op-ed authored, you know, purportedly. I mean, who knows now with the propaganda swirling in every direction. Uh, but it, this op-ed was at least claimed to have been written by you know a senior presidential uh, official in Ukraine, who's literally in the bunker with Zelensky. You know, so he sat there on his laptop and allegedly typed out this op-ed, which then ran the New York Times this morning, which quote. It contains the following injunction, quote, we are calling on the West to impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine. We recognize that this would be a serious escalation in the war and that it could bring NATO into direct conflict with Russia. But we firmly believe that Russia won't stop at just Ukraine, which would potentially drag NATO into this conflict anyway. A no-fly zone would at least give Putin some pause. So what is the logic there? Well, it's that according to them, according to the Zelensky and his top officials, Effectively, war, World War Three is already underway, right? Because he's saying, or the you know purported author of this article, of this op-ed, is saying that Putin won't stop at just Ukraine. So whether that means they're now projecting that Putin is going to invade Poland or you know, 
the Baltics or even if it's just Moldova, whatever, um, they're basically asserting that whatever escalation people might fear by dint of the imposition of a no-fly zone, that's already arrived, and you might as well uh, uh, impose a no-fly zone now to get ahead of Putin. That's the basic thrust of this argument. Um, so, yes, that argument is definitely gaining currency. You see these really extreme emotional appeals for a no-fly zone in particular, not just in the U.S., but across Europe. Uh, Boris Johnson was in Poland yesterday, and I don't know if you saw the clip, but this woman who apparently you know, presented herself as a journalist but seems like she's one of these... I don't want to even put too much of a sinister spin on it, but she's kind of in this activist world of pro-European uh, Ukrainians who are involved in like the nonprofit sector and were staunchly opposed to Putin and Russia anyway, which, you know, is they're right. But I, why this person got a an opportunity to make a hyper-emotional appeal to Boris Johnson in the middle of a press conference in Poland... I'm not sure. Perhaps that was choreographed. Perhaps it wasn't either. But regardless, you're seeing these appeals escalate. Um, so the no-fly no zone issue is kind of an issue unto itself, which if enacted obviously would be like the mother of all thresholds being crossed. But I also do think that there are potentials here for escalation that don't necessarily rise to that level that are really grave and worrisome. And I did an article uh, yesterday on Substack. You might have seen it. You might have not. I'll summarize it. Um, I tried to do you know, what I could in terms of a, a reporting um, from my uh, limited uh, standpoint here in the northeastern United States. But you know, the, the, apart from a no-fly zone, the most clear-cut signal of escalation to me was on Sunday night, this past Sunday night, when the top security official for the European Union, Joseph Borrell, made what many regarded as a staggering announcement, which is that the European Union would be deploying fighter jets to Ukraine. And why were people staggered by that announcement? Well, the European Union has been notorious over really its entire existence, but also in recent years, for not having much interest in kind of fortifying its more defense slash security wing. And it kind of lacks for capacity in that arena. There are also kind of broader political questions over like, what would it mean for the European Union to develop its own military uh, capacity? Does it mean there's like a European army now? Does it mean that it's just, you know, France and or potentially Germany, you know, commanding this European so there are a lot of fraught questions as to what position the European Union would even be in to build up any kind of military uh, presence that's kind of uniquely commanded by it as an entity. But nonetheless, uh, Borrell made this really uh, jarring announcement, and it was very unclear as to what he was even saying was going to happen. And why am I focusing on this element in terms of escalation? Well, if any European Union country that also happens to belong to NATO, which is most of them, if they get involved in an incident in Ukraine or even on the periphery of Ukraine with Russia, 
then at least technically the U.S. is subsequently treaty-bound to intervene in defense of the NATO member state that's under purported attack, right? And even last night at the State of the Union, Biden reiterated what he said all along, which is that the U.S. will use the full force of its military might to defend, quote, every inch of NATO territory. So the, the, the means by which escalation would arise, other than the no-fly zone, at least to my mind, is some NATO country getting involved in some incident or even if it's a miscommunication or a misjudgment, some as yet unforeseen incident whereby hostilities with Russia are carried out. Right, so Borrell said that there, was, there were going to be these shipments of fighter jets to Ukraine, and pretty quickly thereafter, you had a lot of people saying, especially if you had, they had any familiarity with EU security policy, saying, wait, wait a second, what is this guy talking about? How, how, from what precise country are these jets supposedly going to be dispatched to Ukraine? What jets is he even referring to? Um, which Ukrainian pilots does he have in mind that have the capacity to uh, operate any of the advanced jets that maybe uh, uh, France currently has in its arsenal? And so there was a lot of ambiguity about what was even being pledged Sunday night. Then as time went on, you got a little bit more information, but the information was not um, optimistic in terms of that potential for escalation, right? Because the Ukrainian military, or more specifically its Air Force Command, then put out a statement of, of its own sort of in concert with this alleged plan to send fighter jets into Ukraine by the European Union, right? So there was a, a, a verified Facebook post. If you want, you can go look at it on my Substack, or I, I also tweeted it a day or two ago. But here's the precise phrasing. And granted, it's an English translation, so maybe something is being missed in that, that I, I'm not detecting from the original Polish, uh, but I think this is pretty darn close. Um, the, here's what the Air Force Command of the Ukrainian Armed Forces said on Monday. Quote, um, our partners pass us MiG-29 and Su-25. Those are both you know, different models of, of fighter jet. Pretty old ones, by the way, not the most advanced. Um, and they say, if necessary, these will be able to base on Polish airports from which Ukrainian pilots will perform combat tasks. So think about that carefully. They will be able to base on Polish airports from which Ukrainian pilots will perform combat tasks. That seems to be a suggestion that Ukrainian pilots were going to be launching quote-unquote combat tasks from Polish bases, Poland being on the border of Ukraine to the west. That, at least to my mind, and somebody maybe can correct me if I'm interpreting any of this wrong, that would mean, if true, that Ukrainian combat missions were being launched or would be launched from a NATO member state, meaning Poland. And if Poland is facilitating or even, you might say, engaging in combat operations within Ukraine, does that mean 
Russia could retaliate? Do we even know who is exactly uh, piloting these planes? I mean, very little of this is factually verified. Right? So we're dealing with a kind of whirlwind of a rumor and contradiction and uh, half-truths and so on and so forth. So I'm, I'm not taking any of this at face value. I'm simply coming to what my preliminary conclusion is, is that, which is that the ambiguity here is itself what is most alarming. And what do I mean by the ambiguity? Well, this partially derives from the reporting that I personally did, which is that I asked the security division of the European Union if they, quote, I'll give you the exact quote of what I sent them. Could you please describe in greater detail where these EU deployments of fighter jets to Ukraine have originated from and who is physically flying the jets into Ukraine? And they gave me just a standard, you know, pre-prepared text that didn't answer the substance of what I asked at all. So I have no idea where they're claiming these EU deployments of fighter jets to Ukraine have originated from or who is physically flying the jets into Ukraine. So I, in other words, I asked the question with a pretty specific, clear intent in terms of the answer I want to elicit, and that answer was not provided. Now, you did have uh, Slovakia and uh, Bulgaria, which is one of the three countries that the Ukrainian – two of the three countries of the Ukrainian military claims were sending these jets. They seem to, meaning the prime ministers of these countries, they seem to deny that this was happening. Um, although they left open, you know, their, their language was not entirely clear. But the most, I think, acute country here is Poland because it's Poland that the Ukrainian military at least claims from its official government uh, perch that uh, Poland will be hosting essentially combat operations against Russia. Okay. Um, so what did I do? Well, I went to the Polish Ministry of Defense. I went. I mean, I, I contacted them and um, asked for clarity on this very subject and uh, not surprisingly didn't get a whole lot in return uh, except for them to refer me to a statement made yesterday by the president, uh, Duda. Okay? And I think it's really important to, to closely parse what Duda said uh, because it kind of gets to my overall worry here about the looming potential for escalation. Duda said, quote, we are not sending any jets to Ukraine that would open military interference in the Ukrainian conflict. We are not joining that conflict. NATO is not a party to that conflict. We are not going to send any jets to the Ukrainian airspace. Okay, well, that seems on the surface to be a denial, right? But that also doesn't precisely address what it is that the Ukrainian Air Force said was happening, which is that they, meaning the Ukrainian pilots, were using Polish bases to run combat operations into Ukraine, right? So in other words, due to the statement there, it's not a denial exactly of what the Ukrainian Air Force stated was occurring as we speak. Um, and to, to me, that ambiguity, um, the lack of clarity uh, ought to really raise some red flags, at least if you're of the mind that you prefer not to have World War III or prefer not to risk nuclear annihilation because the surest route to that, other than the kind of 
full-blown no-fly zone is some altercation between a NATO country and Russia leading the U- Article 5 to be invoked, which is this collective defense provision, only been invoked once ever in, new- in history for after 9-11, actually. So not even having to do with Europe. Uh, but you know, Article 5 being invoked and then Biden following through on his very fervent pledge to defend every square inch of NATO territory from you know Latvia to uh, Montenegro. Um, so you know the, the the fact that I had a very simple question that I was seeking an answer for, meaning is it true what the Ukrainian military is saying about these fighter jet missions being launched from Poland? And I couldn't get a clear answer to it, and nor could anybody else in the media, as far as I can tell. And if somebody's seen something uh, contrary to that, let me know. Um, that that alone is uh, very much cause for fairly extreme worry. Um, I don't want to be overly uh, paranoid. I don't want to you know frighten people or um, kind of overstate the risk here. I'm trying to be as kind of dispassionate as possible under the circumstances. Um, but I, I do think you know even Marco Rubio, you know the hawks hawk or you know the 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 um, the steward of neoconservative foreign policy in the Senate, um, alongside Lindsey Graham, he even he is saying that this is the most dangerous international moment since uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, so you know, in light of that, I think we should be pretty attuned to certain of these ambiguities that might leave open the possibility of an escalation that people claim they don't want or that they're trying to avoid but given the momentum of the situation with weapons flying constantly into ukraine and with you know more and more troop uh deployments particularly from the u.s heading out to eastern europe you know there was a uh brigade combat team uh sent on the 28th to Eastern Europe, so that's that puts the number of uh, U.S. forces, not even just NATO forces, but U.S. Uh, soldiers in the vicinity right now of a hot war zone to, uh, you know, it's hard to get a firm count on that, but at least 12,000 U.S. troops are in that vicinity, whether it's Poland, the Baltics, and so on. Um, so it's there's a lot of opportunity here, it would seem, for an escalation, notwithstanding, you know, uh, administration, Biden administration officials or even some European officials claim that they're not, they're not going to do boots on the ground or they're not going to do the no-fly zone. I mean, Biden has said there's not going to be a no-fly zone, as have his uh, administration underlings. Uh, I, I guess what I'm trying to emphasize is that that's not the end of the story in terms of potential escalation. Um, and uh, so I'm curious if anybody here in the room – um, do you agree with my assessment? Do you think I'm overstating the case? Um, do you have any uh, worries that you've maybe come across that I haven't uh, because there's such a flood of information right now that we all have to kind of find a way to rationally process? Um, so that's kind of how I want to start off this discussion. And I also just want to say that tomorrow um, I'm going to be personally going to Poland. Uh, I made that decision. Uh, didn't feel right to be sitting here uh, cooped up in my uh, apartment in uh, Jersey City. 
given the uh, magnitude of the story. So uh, the uh, agenda that I have uh, for the Poland trip is still pretty uh, preliminary. Um, if you have any recommendations for, for what might be best to uh, look into, um, I'm open to it, uh, but I will be going tomorrow. And um, you know, with that, I uh, will uh, open it up to callers. So go ahead, Kausha. Hello, Michael. It's Kusha. Hello. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So I just really want to emphasize how severe the crisis is right now, as I'm sure you probably understand, given that the history of um, Russia back when it was the Soviet Union and the U.S., the world was literally on the, the brink of thermonuclear collapse, and it was saved by just one person. No exaggeration there at all. If you watch Oliver Stone's Untold History of the U.S., you'll see that Vasily Arkhipov, who was operating the Russian uh, submarine, the B-59, he literally was the person who saved the world because the policy was that all three officers on the submarine had to give their unanimous agreement in order to launch a missile. And um, they lost contact with other submarines and other um, uh, Soviet um, military leaders to communicate with. So they thought that the fighting had already started. Two of the three officers were about to send off a missile. Arkhipov was the only one who was cautious enough to say not to do it. If they had sent it off, the U.S. would have retaliated and the world would have blown up. So, And I think Putin needs to be condemned immensely. I think NATO needs to be condemned immensely. The U.S. needs to be condemned immensely. The Nazis in Ukraine and the Azov battalion need to be condemned. But what Putin has done by escalating this crisis, by having so many people fearful about nuclear war, it's, 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 it's egregious. I mean, the fact that he's holding these drills with the nuclear submarines, I saw reporting from ABC. The fact that he put it on high alert, I believe I saw from um, the Associated Press. This is egregious. And that's not to say, like, I always think, foremost, making these condemnations does not preclude me or anyone from condemning Biden from his role in 2014, from Victoria Newland's role in 2014 and so on, when Maidan happened. I don't think that at all. I just think we have to tell the full story and truthfully and condemn all war criminals that we see. Of course, the United States undermines its efforts to prosecute people like Putin with its like Hague Invasion Act from the George Bush administration, such that like the International Criminal Court can't even take in any U.S. Um, political leaders and military officers and so on and be tried. So, look, I understand all that. But the fact of the matter is that right now, Vladimir Putin has done what Saddam Hussein did in the 1980s by invading the Islamic Republic of Iran. The Islamic Republic of Iran goaded Saddam Hussein the same way. Saddam Hussein sent a telegram to them after they had t taken power, and the Islamic Republic of Iran rebuffed that, and they started riling up all the Shia clerics in Iran. And then he escalated it. Hirohito escalated the crisis by invading Japan. Uh, sorry, invading China in 1937. Um, Hitler did the same thing in Czechoslovakia and Poland. Putin needs to be condemned for this yeah, okay. escalation. Yeah, yeah. I, I um, so I, I, I largely agree with everything you said. Um, I do think that this whole kind of a narrative as to who is deserving of condemnation and when, or how much condemnation is necessary to uh, dole out to Putin versus other potential factors. I mean, that that's sort of like almost a meta argument about kind of moral culpability, which is worth having. But I, I am kind of leery of how so many discussions, particularly online, which I guess is inherently sort of a biased prism to look through any of this, 
but nonetheless, I mean, it doesn't it does seem like so many of these discussions ends up inevitably about you know this dispute over you know to whom culpability uh, must be assigned. And I, I just to be clear, I mean, I, of course, I do assign it to Putin for um, the reasons that you state. I mean, I think it's unconscionable to. Be putting intentionally putting the world the world in a in fear of an imminent nuclear attack. Um, you know whether his announcement of the nuclear forces of Russia going into combat ready status this past weekend was you know just the bluff or whatever the rationale might have been. It's still an incredibly harmful thing to do, and so yeah, it's just that the condemnation of that seems to me to be. Uh, Uncontroversial, uh, but I, I also am cognizant of how this sort of moral back and forth that people often have between, you know, uh, about the condemnation aspect of it or who needs to be condemned when and how vigorously. It can be a distraction from like the real mechanisms of escalation now that we see in front of us. Um, uh, so again, it's 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 worthy of discussion, clearly. Um, but I almost think that it's been supplanted at this point in terms of as, from just a practical perspective as to like what must be done now, or what ought to be done, or what can be done at this point to avert the kind of wider escalation that would really be uh, unfathomably catastrophic. So I, I don't know if that. Um, no, no, your points are great. I don't know if you, uh, if that sort of no, no, makes sense I, to you. I, no, uh, no, no, your points are reasonable. I think that the U.S., NATO, they need to play an immense role, and China needs to as well. I think the fact that China just voted uh, to be neutral in the condemnation of Russia is a big issue. But furthermore, the U.S. and NATO need to play some of the biggest role by committing to stopping the expansion of NATO to Ukraine. Even as one of the worst war criminals in the world, Henry Kissinger, note through his real, polit- uh, real politics that shouldn't have happened, that NATO needs to be um, have a reduction in its funding, a reduction in its membership, and that, furthermore, the U.S. has to make serious commitments to reducing its nuclear weapons stockhold and doing so for its allies like Israel as well. And this needs to be done, and China needs to be there brokering it as well. The U.S. needs to be taking a leading role in doing those moves because this war needs to be ended immediately, just like the Bolsheviks with the treaty. The, 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 the trouble is, I don't know about you, maybe you've seen something that I haven't, but I don't detect much of an appetite really amongst any of the parties for brokering some kind of sustainable uh, diplomatic resolution right. to any of this. It seems like you know, the, as the longer the war goes on, the more both the warring parties – are dug into their respective sides. You know, Putin already now has an astronomical amount invested in this. The, 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 this reflexive demand to just cripple the Russian economy, um, yes. which seems to be underway, yes. uh, that seems to me like it's a perverse incentive on Putin. It's like it now is. he has nothing to lose, right? Yes, you're right. Um, and, and really, it's just a memoir about like the kind of base emotional gratification of the quote-unquote West to inflict punishment. Uh, right. Rather than to actually right. reach a diplomatic accord that could avert this, you know, hist- historic uh, catastrophe that seems to be looming. So I don't, I don't really see anybody acting with enough of a cool head I don't that, um, that, that, that could, uh, in a way, that could achieve what you, what you and I, uh, I agree with you, uh, needs to be achieved, which is uh, an end to the open conflict. I fully agree. I think that the United States. I saw the State of the Union last night. I saw the whole thing. 
I think it was towards the beginning when Biden said, like, we're going to ban, like, Russian flights. Like, I knew, like, this is going in an awful direction. It's just going further and further down this jingoism. And the jingoism is not just a U.S. thing. Putin obviously has his own jingoism as well. I've been reading about so many Russian troops who they thought they were going to go in and liberate Ukraine, just like what happened during World War II. And then they see that so many people are hating them for coming in and slaughtering them, slaughtering their public squares, slaughtering their children. And, and they're feeling betrayed. Obviously, the jingoism in the United States is a whole other level. Obviously, Russia has its own awful jingoism, too. But the jingoism is worsening. We're seeing, as who was it, Eric Swalwell was saying, just take out all, like, Russian students in the United States. I've seen Sean Hannity. I mean, it's bipartisan. Sean Hannity today said NATO should just bomb the Russian convoy that's encircling Kiev. And, but they can do it secretly so Putin wouldn't know. I mean, give you, this is just uh, insanity. I agree. I agree. Look, I think what the best thing that would happen in my view, in my view, and I don't think it's completely unreasonable because I saw, I don't know, you know, Progressive International, Yanis Varoufakis' left wing group. They put out a statement on, I think it was today. Yeah. About how there's a new coalition of uh, socialists in Russia. And they put out a very nice statement saying, like, we have millions of people who are protesting Putin. And I think it needs to be like what happened during um, the 1917, 1918 era in Russia, where like right away, the people of Russia, they took power and they ended Russian involvement in World War I. It needs to be the exact same thing. And in the United States, we need the same thing too. Don't get me wrong. They're not off the hook at all in my regard. Um, Biden and Harris and Blinken and Lloyd Austin, they're not at all. I'm just saying, I think maybe in Russia, people are probably a little closer because of their hatred of Putin, because of how much he oppresses them. It's more visible probably in their daily lives in the United States where there's so many more distractions that keep people like aloof from what's going on and how badly they're suffering. Well, as much, talking about the U.S. anyway, as much as jingoism as there might be now, and I agree that it's growing, I think it's nothing compared to the type of jingoism you'll guarantee to, to see if there is one of these incidents that I'm, speculating might happen given the kind of fraught dynamics right now in uh, in and around Ukraine with these with US troops am- amassing and them doing these drills with you know quote unquote drills with uh NATO allies and you know who's the, the, Who's to say that, you know, uh, one of these jets couldn't enter into forbidden airspace to be shot down? I mean, there are a million different possibilities. So if you think the jingoism is bad now, and I agree it is, at least in terms of like the uniformity of opinion and the, the fact that there's no partisan differentiation really between Republican and Democrat on this issue, which is itself an, always an ominous uh, portent. Uh, but it, it, it just it, it pales in comparison to what we would be saddled with if, you know, there's some military hostilities that break out where, you know, God forbid a, a U.S. soldier is, is killed or, you know, multiple are killed or something. I mean, then you'd see, I, I, I think at that point you would see uh, a, a real desire uh, widespread, you know, definitely amongst the elites anyway, and probably to some extent also within the wider populace to, to, to intentionally escalate this into uh, a, a wider war by either invoking Article 5 or whatever the exact mechanism is. The most frightening part is that I believe you're right. I mean, we saw it li- last night with Biden's State of the Union. All this talk we see after the George Floyd protests and Breonna Taylor being lynched, or rather shot to death and all that. And then we just see, like, fun, 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 the police establishment, which already has $115 billion. So The military um, war budget is going to be $768 billion plus dollars. And the worst part is the euphemisms that have been used. You know, it used to be called the Department of War from when the United States took effect under the current Constitution 
on March 4th, 1789, until 1947. And then they changed it yeah. to the Department of Defense, just like George Orwell's book, 19, uh, 1984, it's called, right? The Ministry of Truth that carries out false propaganda. The Ministry of Love that carries out torture. The Ministry of Peace that carries out war. It's the same thing. It's literally the same thing. Yeah. You know, this, uh, the, the, the European Union mechanism that they were claiming was going to be used to s- dispatch these fighter jets and, to my knowledge, is being uh, utilized to dispatch other armaments uh, to, uh, sh- being shipped to Ukraine in some capacity. It's called the uh, European Peace Facility. So that, that, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the mechanism they're using to throw, uh, you know, whatever high-grade weaponry they have in their arsenal into Ukraine. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, to say something is Orwellian is a bit of a cliche, but sometimes it's just so on the money that you can't help but use it. All right, uh, Kasha, thank you. Uh, I share Kusha, sorry. Kusha, apologies. Uh, I share your um, your somewhat concerned uh, vigor on this subject, clearly. Oh, it's pretty concerned, not just somewhat, but thank you very much, Michael. Okay, your highly concerned vigor, yeah. Okay, going to go to... Um, Dade. Dade, go ahead. Hey, Mike. Uh, how's it going? Good evening. I'm okay, thanks. So congratulations on this decision to go to Poland. i um, just kind of curious, like, what you hope to be able to do over there. Well, you know, it's a good question. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it was kind of uh, a byproduct of me not really being content to just sit in my apartment on my computer while uh, an event of this magnitude is unfolding and feeling like I, sh- I need to do something more direct just to at least, you know, chronicle what's happening or, or just get a better insight into, you know, at least the, you know, one of the key areas where something could potentially escalate. Um, so, you know, I'm definitely going to try to, uh, I'll talk to some of the, you know, the, the refugees that have, influxed into Poland. Um, I want to get a better sense, if at all possible, of what the, the, the U.S. military presence there is, is up to. I mean, it's the greatest number of U.S. troops in Poland, to, as I understand it, for several decades. So, like, what are they in practice doing? Um, I don't know if they're going to grant media access. Uh, I will seek that uh, through, like, official channels, but, you know, there are other ways one can gain information. Um, and, uh, really just kind of get a, a, a sense of what people are saying and, and thinking and especially, you know, uh, tailored toward, you know, my, my fear here, that was the kind of premise for this, this show tonight, which is the very real and distinct and uh, growing with each passing day, uh, possibility of, of escalation. So that's, that's what I'm going to do. And. Uh, it's not the most concrete plan yet, but I will uh, kind of play it by ear. And I already have a couple of people that I'm talking to about potential things to to do that I don't want to uh, reveal publicly quite yet. Um, and we'll just have to see. Cool. Do you do you speak uh, Ukrainian or Russian or Polish? I, I don't, unfortunately. So um, you know, I'm initially going to uh, Warsaw, which uh, I uh, I'm told is as uh, a fairly prevalent English speaking. Population, but um, uh, I'm in, in the process of uh, getting somebody to uh, to translate for me uh, if need be. But it's cool. kinda, it's still still kind of uh, you know in the works. Well, that's cool. That's exciting. Hopefully, I'll I'll be looking out for maybe some interesting interviews. And uh, I'm also very interested to see what the perspectives from the people on the ground are because 
as I'm sure you know, it's like uh, very difficult to parse propaganda from real reporting in this moment. Yeah, and you know, I think there, and there's also a lot of just U.S. activity in general in in Poland right now. Like I, I you know Samantha Power was there on the border with Ukraine recently. I mean, God knows what she's up to at this point. Um, uh, you know, but as I said, Boris Johnson was there uh, yesterday. Uh, you have a lot of official delegations going back and forth. There was like a big NATO meeting that with the with the top U.S. commander, you know, Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. In, in Poland yesterday. So, you know, how much access I can conceivably get, I don't know, uh, you know, but it's worth a shot. And uh, other than that, you know, it's always good to get a perspective of just kind of the ordinary person on the ground, not necessarily the shot callers um, who can maybe you know, better inform how I'm kind of synthesizing what's happening. So, Absolutely. I mean, this is certainly a, a situation that calls for, you know, getting up and actually going there. So anyway, just to get to it, um, I'm aware of your work because I largely do agree with your work. Um, although I would like to try to, if I can, maybe like push back on some certain things. Sure. Um, but before doing that, I just want to add some certain things. I listened to your, your first part, which I largely agree with. And I just wanted to maybe like put some things in there that I feel may add to what you're saying. Um, one, and this is my initial reaction, is just the idea of Murphy's Law playing out in front of us in the sense of anything bad that can happen given enough time will happen applied to, you know, nuclear weapons. And, um, you mentioned before, and and this is the talk of the town is that, you know, even though Putin has, uh, mentioned the use of nuclear weapons and threatened it, you know, essentially this is a bluff that we could or should call. And some have even gone as far as say that this is a bluff that we once did call in the cold war and that that was um, something better. And I think it's just interesting to reflect on, like, if a a world-ending nuclear war event were to happen, I think it's reasonable to assume that large factions of people in that situation would have thought, um, would have had reasonable warning of of the incoming war and would have thought it was a bluff, right? So, yeah, you know, so... Now onto the, the no-fly zone that's going and on. Just, qu- just quickly, and you can continue, I just want to give like a point of information before sure. I forget, which is I read an article actually a couple of days ago. People can look it up if they want. The headline is, Newly Released Documents Shed Light on 1983 Nuclear War Scare with the Soviets in the Washington Post, February 17th, 2021. And some uh, unearthed uh, documents, U.S. documents, which um, – uh, Reveal that in there was this incident in November 1983 in East Germany, where the Soviet Union put fighter bombers on alert, uh, and the alert called for quote preparations for the immediate use of nuclear weapons. So actually, there were there were these these uh, fighter jets loaded with nuclear bombs on 24-hour alert flying in East Germany, um, given their uh, interaction in to a NATO exercise. So, you know, it's kind of the, uh, an echo of what is happening now, but um, back in, the, uh, in that fraught period in the early 80s. Um, so, but, but, I mean, just think about it. There were, that was, it's kind of uh, similar in its uh, jarringness to uh, what Putin said his alert was uh, just recently. Um, so, but there, there are plenty of uh, episodes like that throughout the course of the Cold War that aren't as... Um, ingrained in popular memory as they really ought to be just in terms of the potential risk that we're facing. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Obviously, the the Cold War is the only nuclear standoff in human history that I'm aware of. And as you point out, um, uh, other than the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is the well-known, um, you know, the one that's in the collective consciousness the most, there are many examples at which the Cold War came very, very close to becoming a hot war. And if that's our only... Um, that's our only nuclear standoff and it came that close. It's reasonable to assume that future nuclear standoffs will be just as close, if not, you know, will likely to result in the actual war. Well, you know, and, and so, again, not to interrupt, but you, and you can, you can continue. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, one, one reason why Stephen Cohen, the, the late Russia scholar said that he regarded the, this current period of tensions with Russia as even more dangerous than any point of tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union was because of the kind of randomness of this current uh, dynamic, right? Or the, the 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 unpredictability of it. Back in the '80s, you know, throughout the Cold War, there was at least in the public consciousness, to some degree, an awareness of the, you know this concept of mutually dis- uh, assured destruction, right? Nuclear doctrine was a huge area of academic study and almost, even just like pop culture awareness. Um, and it really it kind of f- fell by the wayside as an issue of, of such kind of paramount significance over the years, particularly when the Soviet Union dissolved for, for partially understandable reasons. But that nuclear threat really always persisted. I mean, Russia does have the biggest nuclear arsenal in the world, and, and yet we don't have kind of like the um, – the same level of public awareness as to that threat as there was in the in the past. So I wonder if that means that we kind of lost kind of a baked in uh, mitigation kind of almost strategy that helped to avert some of those Cold War era episodes that really doesn't exist now because it's just not as as well understood by uh, you know a population much of which has no uh, living memory of the Cold War. Yeah. Right, and, and feel free to jump in. I have my things written down here, so I won't forget anything. Yeah, uh, that's actually something that I was going to, and I will touch back on that, because uh, I think you're spot on, and truly I don't think that it's the understanding and respect for a nuclear war that is uh, long gone from Western and particularly American consciousness, but just respect for war in general. Um, you know, I will return to this topic, but, you know, this is not the first war that we we've seen in the 21st century in fact america has been taken part in many many wars we've bombed in many many cities and it's uh it's very interesting to see the way in which americans and westerners have no understanding or grasp of what that actually looks like or feels like and i think we've become completely desensitized and detached from not just what a, a nuclear attack could be but just simply any war um yeah, you know, uh, Chris Hedges, the, the kind of iconoclastic author, um, yeah, and uh, who you might be familiar with. I first became aware of him in the you know, mid to early to mid two thousands, and because he had a book called "War Is a Force That Gives Us Meaning," and um, that's sort of a kind of a slogan he invented to encompass his his thesis. But but I I almost feel it now within myself, which is that there is an invigorating element to war in, in that it sharpens kind of moral dis, uh, distinctions 
it has kind of like a momentum about it that really gets you uh, hyper emotionally invested. Um, and it makes a lot of other stuff that society preoccupies itself with seem trivial, um, which it is. It is. Uh, so there's like a, there's a dynamic to this that almost really is intoxicating in a perverse way. And I'd be lying if I don't observe something reminiscent of that even within myself as much as I am now focused on averting war, uh, just even the specter of it has kind of this uh, kind of dark excitement about it that is uh, seems to kind of flow from like the re- recesses of the human psyche, especially, I mean, not to make this into a gender thing, but, but especially for males, you know, like uh, this kind of like combat, this like primordial combat instinct, which is why like you see, you know, uh, just all these guys, you know, uh, obsessing with every little development of the war and you know, looking for all the footage and the uh, the strategy and the maneuvers and so on and so forth. It, it, it is very much uh, kind of a male skewing interest. Uh, and, you know, males tend to be the ones who, who fight the wars. So I'm not even like making any kind of normative judgment. I'm just sort of trying to observe what I, uh, to, to kind of distill what I see happening. Well, yes, and I mean, I think any reasonable person knows exactly what you're talking about, but, um, you know, war as a, as a human universal, as long as we have been, you know, human for millions of years, we've been waging war against our brothers, and I think it's not only reasonable to assume, but um, should be expected that there would be a sort of evolutionary biological function in our psyche that accounts for this behavior that we exhibit cross-culturally, universally, throughout time. I think this is something that we probably, almost undoubtedly, from a psychological perspective, do not understand. Um, I think we probably don't understand what war unlocks from the individual psychology to the collective consciousness. And I think that probably explains, you know, why you see what you see today in the world, you know, how the media gets so off the rails and how people get um, encapsulated in the momentum, you know, well, basically, as you just put it, what that is, you know, whatever that is, I think it's something that we don't understand fully. And so I think that's, you know, to be respected and potentially feared. But, um, okay, so just moving on to my next point here. With the no-fly zone that's being kicked around for the Ukrainian no-fly zone, I feel like it, it has to be said that this, desire for a no-fly zone goes back and if i trace back to the um 2016 presidential campaign of hillary clinton yeah she can yes and she campaigned on a no-fly zone over syria which at the time would have was the exact same situation which would have resulted in nato shooting down russian planes and right. so i see this and which trump actually dismissed as potentially leading to world war three i mean that's why he said he opposed it I think that was a large part, um, a significant percentage of why people chose to not vote for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. I, obviously, doesn't that one policy doesn't account for 100% of the people who didn't, but I think it's a significant amount of people who were anti-war and saw that as a clear escalation in Syria that would have resulted in a situation much like we find ourselves in today. So it's frustrating to see what feels like uh, Western, NATO, uh, American, driven by what is 
you know, identified by no other than the deep state uh, language. But there seems to be a drive from the military-industrial complex for a long time that we can trace um, pretty clearly to instigate Russia with a no-fly zone over, you know, their military operations. And I think that should be noted. Um, so, yeah, moving on to this, this pump of weapons into well, Russia. Just, well, 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 just, just, uh, just on that point quickly, I mean, one of the people who's called for a no-fly zone recently, and I don't want to even use the term deep state because that's so kind of intertwined with kind of nonsense partisan controversies. But um, nonetheless, Philip Breedlove, I don't know if you saw this, but he was the commander of the European Command. Yes. Um, and, you know, retired four-star general, basically head of NATO for all intents and purposes operationally um, from 2013 to 2016. He, a few days ago, came out and said that, yeah, <laughs> a no-fly zone would in practice mean a declaration of war on Russia, but he favors that. Like that's, that's why that's why he favors a no-fly zone because it would necessarily entail a declaration of war on Russia, and this was the person commanding NATO. Yeah, and so you know if he is that unhinged, and if he's that oblivious to the seismic implications of what he's saying ought to be done, then what does it tell you that he was the one in charge of NATO during? Actually, a critical period, uh, including 2014 when the, the coup first happened in Ukraine. I mean, th- these are the types of people who are, you know, the decision makers in this whole kind of apparatus of conflict that's kind of, you know, multidirectionally led to this point. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you say the, the decision makers and the apparatus, and I think that's right. And- you know, not to get too caught up on this because I, I agree with your where you're coming from with this term, the deep state. But it's like uh, I also feel we need to have language to talk about, as you say, you know, if we're talking about unaffected, unelected officials that sit in positions that have control through administrations to shape policy that throughout, or, you know, given enough time can control what does and does not happen. You know, and, and I, I think the example you gave is telling for the uh general of nato but i think we don't even know the extent to which there's generals in the u.s military that are advocating for this no-fly zone in the president's ear and you know who was aligned with hillary clinton in 2016 and so i think that it's like um in terms you know called the military industrial complex you know and some level i don't even care what term you use but i feel like it has to be named yeah all right well um so let's talk about the weapons that are getting pumped and yeah. have been getting pumped into russia you know obviously this is what Trump was impeached on for his first his first time going around that. Right. Um, impeached you, imp- impeached for supposedly freezing deployment uh, shipments of U.S. W- weapons to Ukraine. But actually, if you dig into the details, and I did this te- contemporaneously in the fall of 2019, even the Democrats' own impeachment witnesses that they called forth at their committee hearings – acknowledged that there was never any interruption in the shipments of weapons to Ukraine, you know, notwithstanding this idea that Trump freezed it, which, you know, he did, you know, uh, superficially. Um, but they never missed a shipment in Ukraine. So, I mean, if, don't fear if you're uh, worried that, you know, Trump's 
uh, egotism maybe inhibited those uh, deployments of lethal weaponry to Ukraine. They actually didn't, uh, but they did off, obviously – that whole episode did obviously provide enough political fodder to culminate in the, the first uh, foreign policy-specific impeachment uh, in U.S. history. Anyway, yeah, ahead. and obviously like those weapons going to the Ukraine to begin with was uh, a wild, inflammatory, and escalatory act. But, you know, regardless to that um, – By Trump. So, by Trump, by the United States, by Europe, by whoever was sending it. I mean, I feel like if you that's one of those clear examples where if you reverse the roles, how would the United States respond to, you know, Russia or China sending arms to, you know, a dispute on our border? It would be highly inflammatory and aggressive. Um, but so regardless of that, now we're seeing the weapons, you know, massively increase. Um, just to get, into the, to get into it, I feel like what's going on from the perspective of Zelensky is... So to me, it feels so wildly irresponsible to have, um, you know, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that he has invited this invasion, but he certainly for years and, you know, just the Western Ukraine for years was, you know, you look at what's going on in the Donbass region and that civil war. This is not something that began this week. And I don't think that it's something that Zelensky, you know, was terribly concerned with stopping. And then once it got out of control, you know, I think it's like they thought Putin was going to go into the Donbass and the regions in the east. They never thought he was going to take it this far. But once he did, I feel like the turning of civilians into combatants and the, uh, you know, begging the world to turn the, you know, Zelensky is basically screaming for this to become World War III. Yeah, and, and, you know, and and these tough guy Western commentators egging on, you know, Ukrainians, you know, grandmothers or whatever, to get take uh, to to take an AK forty seven and head into the streets. I mean, right. you're putting them at risk. I saw a horrible video uh, yesterday from one of these kind of open source intelligence channels. Seems to have been verified, unfortunately, but it was this kind of group of Ukraine uh, Ukrainian civilians that had attempted to attack a um, a Russian unit with Molotov cocktails. And, you know, sorry to say, but they got totally gruesomely obliterated. And it's just like, you know, the the, the asymmetry in the Russian military power versus the Ukrainian military power is has been evident for all to, to see even prior to the invasion being launched. Meaning it was kind of just understood that, of course, Ukraine would be no match for the full force of the Russian military, given the disparity in their capabilities. Right. And, and you know. I don't want to take anything that's away necessarily from Ukrainian citizens who feel a very understandable compulsion, you know, to defend their country from occupation, but to just kind of willy nilly encourage them to become overnight combatants with no training, um, you're almost making the situation worse and doubly worse by you know every everybody and their mother flooding the country. With this, with even more lethal weapons, even I don't know if you saw, but even today, Spain said yeah. they were sending a shipment of, of lethal weapons. I mean, who's going to be wielding these machine guns and grenade launchers? I mean, do we have it? There's, it's a ridiculous well, you know, notion I, that there could, that anybody's going to be able to maintain a chain of custody on how they're being distributed. I mean, yeah. I brought up earlier today, on, I tweeted that you know, ISIS ended up with U.S. Yeah. Man, provide, uh, manufactured weaponry. Um, and, you know, we have a very 
well-established history of this just, you know, uh, uninhibited weapons funneling tactic uh, having un- uh, unintended consequences. I mean, I don't even know how you could say that they're unintended given the kind of lackadaisical attitude here. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just on the point, I guess just more broadly on the point, this is actually gets back to my original premise for this room. I don't know how these countries, on the one hand, are claiming, you know, led by the U.S., are claiming that on the one hand they want to de-escalate, right, and they want a cessation of hostilities. But on the other hand, what are they doing in practice? They're dumping astronomical amounts of weaponry into a hot war zone. I mean, that's the opposite of what you – that's not an escalatory intervention. I'm sorry. That, or that's not a de-escalatory intervention. I'm sorry. That's just outright definitionally escalation. And yep. it seems like nobody's pointing out this contradiction. Yeah. And, and as you say, I mean, like, encouraging civilians to fight $45 million weapons of war, absolute destroying machines, tanks with Molotov cocktails, it, it, it makes me honestly sick to my stomach. And that's coming from someone from a perspective of, you know, believe me, if someone was invading my city, I think it's likely I would be the the citizen with the small arms with a Molotov cocktail. So, I, like you said, I understand people's desire to want to protect their hometown. But as a leader, to put that type of rhetoric out there is, is so wildly irresponsible. And as you say, much like with pumping of weapons, it's not de-escalatory. And I think it's gross how the, the first couple days of the invasion that were a little bit more timid militarily were then spun as you know ukraine is is beating the russian military and and will expel them because we all know that this is not a question of can ukraine beat russia there's there's no question and you know you made the point that just now that the weapons that went to the middle east and were seized by isis it's like okay i'm not a military strategist strategist here but what I see is, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of highly high-tech NATO weaponry is going into Ukraine three days into an invasion when it's basically looking like Kiev is about to be completely surrounded, sieged, and taken, you know, bombarded and taken. So basically how this looks is this weaponry that's coming in this week will probably be in Russia's hands by next week, and that will only make tensions between a... a, a a face-off between NATO and Russia so much more um, scary and so much more potentially dangerous. Or, you know, uh, factions of the Ukrainian populace who aren't the nicest people, you know. Um, insurgents, you know, I, I, I think it's po- very possible that there's going to be some kind of protracted insurgency, but, you know, they're, they're not like liberal Democrats who are waging this insurgency battle uh, for the most part in these uh, conflicts. Uh, they tend to be, you know, militias, and they tend to be zealots, and you know, people. There's a lot of focus on the Azov Battalion, and yeah, I, I, I would say that you know those elements are being radicalized even further, and maybe new ones will 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 pop up. Um, and are we going to be comfortable, you know, uh, six months from now or a year from now, however long, uh, with having armed them? Um, you know, maybe they'll have a grievance with the U.S. because we they, they think we didn't do enough and we kind of reneged on our commitments from 1994 or whatever to provide for the defense of Ukraine if they gave up their nuclear weapons. And whatever the logic is, this spirals out of control in a way that I don't see 
virtually any world leader uh, using the discernment that would be necessary to kind of identify the inherent risk in this proposition of just funneling ever more high-grade weaponry into a hot war zone. I mean, the, the, the casualness of it is, is really striking. But anyway, Dave, um, thank you for um, Justin, if you don't mind. All right, yeah. Oh, sorry, Dave, I, I cut you off. Um, well, you know, we're going to be doing more of these rooms from, uh, from Poland and whatnot, so we could talk again. All right, go ahead, Justin. Uh, hi, Michael. Thanks for having me, and thanks yeah. for hosting this, and glad to hear you're going to Poland. I loved your on-the-ground reporting back in, uh, in 2020 when no one else would actually basically do that when it came to the riots in the States. Yeah, um, thank you. Anyways, you guys have talked about a lot of stuff, and uh, I keep wondering as I see all of this kind of just this super widespread uh, push for what is essentially war, though no one is going to call it that specifically, of like a Western involvement in this is uh, it's just like what am I missing here? It seems it seems clear like we want why we would want this to end as soon as possible, and th- the idea that you know. Us encroaching further, and when I say us, I speak really broadly, the EU, NATO, the U.S., um, encroaching more into this, uh, into this, the, this conflict is only going to, you know, ramp things up. And, but I see it happening everywhere, and I'm not surprised I see it in the media. I think that's just good business for them, truthfully, when they bring on somebody who's like, "Yeah, you have any, you have any, um, do this. you have you have any kind of most kind of illustrative examples at top of mind that maybe I didn't happen to see today or yesterday or whatever." Uh, examples of what? Uh, of like the this desire to pro- prolong the war or for Western involvement to be kind of more. Well, um, the, the the thing that stands out the most to me is exactly what you said about this former NATO commander and yeah. uh, what's happening in Poland is, is just the idea that um, we're going to involve ourselves. And, and yeah, we, we know that the consequences will be um, we, we open the door to a retaliation that is going to just further entrench all of these parties into a conflict with Russia and God knows who else. Um that these people seem to know that that's the consequence and that that brings with it, you know, just regular war, potentially for thermonuclear war. And they are pushing forward anyways. And I, I'm wondering, like, what, what am I missing here? What, why are all these people so, you know, I don't want to say cavalier necessarily, but it's okay with that as being a prospect here. Well, I think there is a certain uh, cavalierness, if that's the noun, um, about it. Uh, I, I think now it's, you know, it, it, it mostly exists in the realm of like a rah-rah kind of rallying cry in the U.S. anyway. And I know a lot of um, progressives uh, find what's happening now to be like the, the culmination of their years of angst about Putin. Um, and, you know, they feel that their kind of depiction of him as this arch-global supervillain has been uh, vindicated and so like the ordinary sort of anti-war sentiment that you think would be attendant to something like this where we we're trying to encourage de-escalation we're trying to push back against policies which obviously further inflame an already incredibly fraught situation they're just not 
existent. Um, you know, just a quick aside, because I, I wrote about this on um, Monday in, in my Substack, but, you know, I, I do think that this ideological backdrop is uh, really important for why there's such conformity of opinion right now in the U.S. Um, and, and what is the ideological backdrop? Well, since 2016, there's been this narrative, not just Russiagate per se, but the kind of global, uh, the kind of like wider international relations theory of Russia as this sort of tribune of the extremist populist right um, that are, you know, insurrectionists and they're, you know, they attacked the Capitol on January 6th and they even were, you know, involved in the trucker protests in Canada, whatever you, whatever. It, it was, it was always kind of just theorized that Putin was somehow pulling the strings behind all that. And, um, and so that kind of makes it more of like an ideologically comfortable thing for progressives anyway, to be uh, leading the charge for, Escalation, um, because you know it's not like an anti-war. It's like a war versus peace thing for them. It's like it's stopping Putin, right? And of course, you know the Republicans. I mean, they're pretty much just useless, and they're um, uh, kind of they have this latent kind of militarism in their coalition anyway. So you know that 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 it just kind of fuses together into uh, just like a pretty much 99%, I would say, of the entire U.S. establishment is um, in favor of these escalatory measures. I mean, maybe they're not coming out right and saying that they want to know fly zone yet, or at least not a um, not a critical mass are. I mean, and Biden's, you know, at least claiming he's against that. <coughs> Excuse me a bit. But, but like the, 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 the recipe, I mean, the ideological recipe is here to, to kind of justify this um, – this uh, further escalation um, as uh, like a political matter in the U S and I think that's really pretty crucial here. Um, yeah. I, I see the U S derangement a hundred percent. And I think that that's a big thing with the media on both sides. Like there are just these narratives that have existed and this is just a, an extension of that, especially obviously there's all the Russia stuff um, on the left and just the wider establishment. Um, it's it's frightening to me that this isn't just amongst you know the general populace or the Twitter sphere, but it is like these extremely extremely highly placed individuals that have a lot of influence on the actual outcome of events. Well, yeah, you had Richard Haas. Also behind had, this, yeah, right? Richard Haas, I mean, the chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations. So at the, like, you know, the beating heart of the, uh, the foreign policy establishment, he just, he's now talking about regime change in Russia. I mean, this was just yeah. this would have been unthinkable uh, a week ago. So, I mean, we've we've crossed some sort of Rubicon. Yeah, yeah, and at this point, I, I feel like we're just being told what's going to happen. Uh, that that is why that is the messaging we're seeing now. That's the stance that we're seeing, and the fact that it's the only stance that we're you know we the polite of society is allowed to talk about is uh, it, it's just. It seems so transparent that this is a top-down. Hey, this is going to happen, and now we're just acclimatizing you to it. You're gonna you're gonna get used to it over the coming week or so, and soon. Yeah, enough, but I mean, but I mean, we'll be there. Even if it is just like that top-down sort of imposition in the way that you're postulating, I, I don't see much in the way of any potential for like a, a grassroots mobilization against this in the first place. I mean, there's been no anti-war. Uh, movement activity at all since this started, other than, you know, 
a handful of rallies against Russia. I mean, okay, so what does that accomplish? That you're you're also condemning Russia? I mean, yeah, I agree that the invasion is condemnation worthy, but I'm now not so clear on what like another condemnation, you know, out of the ten billion that have already been issued, um, what utility that confers? I mean, I think now the utility is to um, discourage escala- uh, escalation, and I, I don't see much. Uh, momentum at all, or even potential for momentum around any kind of organiza- organization uh, tw- toward that end. So it's uh, it's ominous. But uh, thank you, Justin. Uh, Going to go now to Davis. Davis, go ahead. Hello, Michael. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. Um, going back to your opening remarks about the, I believe you said it was the New York Times editorial calling for a no-flight zone. And yeah, there was an op-ed uh, published by the New York Times today from a okay. uh, confidant of uh, Zelensky calling for a no-fly zone. Okay, thank you. Um, but the, uh, as I understand, you explained the logic behind this was that it's pretty much a given that if Putin takes uh, Ukraine, then he's not going to stop there. And that was the, uh, I guess, the justification behind this op-ed. Yeah, I mean, you could, I, 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 I tweeted earlier today, so you can go take a look at the exact wording of it. And I think I might have read it out earlier. But yeah, I mean, the, the basic argument was that, you know, we, meaning this is what the, what Zelensky is saying. We understand that, yes, a no-fly zone would be a drastic escalation. However, we're arguing that the escalation has already happened because Putin intends to attack NATO countries regardless. So NATO might as well act preemptively and curtail his advance now, you know, regardless of the escalation that would bring that would bring because, you know, again, the escalation has already arrived. And isn't that based on the assumption, though, that Putin will be successful in Ukraine in order to advance beyond that? Yeah, I mean, one would think. Uh, I mean, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you're of the mind that, you know, the Ukrainians have overperformed and are, you know, beating back Russia or, you know, are going to somehow achieve victory. Um, Yeah, yeah, I mean, I actually hadn't thought of it that way, but you're right. I mean, it it does, if you read between the lines, it's um, an indication of how uh, pessimistic they are about the, um, the government not being overthrown, um, meaning they think they are going to be overthrown imminently. So they're this is like a last-ditch effort on their part to kind of bring in some extra firepower that could, you know, save them. Right, right. And uh, as I've seen as in terms of the Western media reports, it, it sounds like, you know, Russia's uh, bogged down, not uh, making the progress you would expect from such, you know, a, a country with such a large military and that seems to be at odds with with this idea. That it's yeah, you know, I'd, I'd be cautious about that narrative um, just because, you know, what is that coming from? I mean, that's coming from largely what the Ukrainian military says is their status, right? Or these um, highly kind of... Uh, motivated and um, confirmation bias motivated analysts um, who are vehemently against Russia, you know, not unjustifiably. I mean, it, was, it is an aggressive war. But the, 
as a consequence, the information that they're filtering out there probably paints a far more pessimistic picture about Russia's uh, prospects than is 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 genuinely the case. Um, they do they do seem to have sustained a fair amount of casualties and, and so on. So you know, I'm not ruling anything out. Maybe it does fail as a mission. Um, but I think a lot of that those kind of proclamations of Russia, you know, faltering disastrously were premature. You know, I saw these. I saw generals and stuff like the TV generals, Petraeus and Jack Keane on Fox and so on, you know, making this point a couple of days ago. And then today we see that they've, you know, Russia just took over a major city, um, Kharkiv. And, um, you know, they have, they still have the capital, you know, encircled. They, they, they're, they're advancing from the south, as I understand it. Um, and it's, you know, it's only been a week. I mean, it's not like... <laughs> It's something to. I think that the, the premature declarations here have something to do with this kind of culture of instant gratification, where it's like it, they didn't do like a Iraq 2003 style shock and awe in the first three nights, and then uh, you know uh, collapse the capital. That means that somehow they have uh, r- radically failed. I mean, I'm not rooting for them to succeed necessarily, right? But I, I'm just saying, from a st- as like an objective observer. I, I just don't find that to be the case, and you, especially if you're getting your information from social media. I mean, it's like overwhelmingly slanted. I mean, the, that that information is overwhelmingly being shaped by people who want Ukraine to prevail, right? Um, so you got to be, I think, you know, mindful of that as you're uh, kind of formulating your interpretation. Right. I have uh, another point, Michael. I had read yeah. uh, a tweet by Representative Paul Gosar. Yeah, uh, yeah. Arizona. I think he uh, tweeted this roughly two hours ago. He said that he is uh, supporting, along with, um, I think it was Thomas Massey and one other Republican representative who are in opposition to House Resolution 965, I believe it was, either 965 or 956. And he described that resolution as. Uh, basically um, granting U- uh, Ukraine kind of a unofficial recognition as a NATO member in the context of Article Five. Mm. I hope, yeah, I I just uh, that's yeah. interesting. That uh, I don't know what uh, weight a House resolution could carry if that would pass, but it, you know that was interesting. Yeah, you know, I hadn't seen that. Thank you for bringing that to my attention, actually. I'm just uh, now seeing that tweet. I have to read more thoroughly into it. But you're right. Yeah, it's Gosar, uh, Massey, and also uh, Congressman Rosendale. Um, only three of them, though, so it's not like this is a uh, major force within the Congress. Uh, but, yeah, I have to read the text of that resolution, and um, yeah, I'll, I'll, have to, I'll, I'll get back to you because that's, that seems significant to me. Well, and one uh, quick closing comment uh, – I think another caller had mentioned the Oliver Stone series, The Untold History of the United States. Yes. And uh, the historian that uh, worked with Oliver Stone, Peter Tuznick, um, he has spoken about this uh, to some extent that uh, really the reason that the United States dropped the two nuclear bombs on Japan was not uh, not to end the war in Japan, but to send a message to the Soviet Union, because Truman was, I guess, uh, 
not clear on how far the Soviet Union may have already developed nuclear weapons or were in that process. And if that is true, then it's pretty sad to think that the Cold War really originated from that point. Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I, I'm aware of that theory. Uh, I think that's backed up by contemporaneous documentation of Truman's deliberations. I don't know that it can be said that that was the sole intent behind the bopping, uh, dropping of the atomic bomb. I think that it's, that's generally, if I'm not mistaken, I have to review the history here, but I, I think that's generally uh, taken to be the interpretation of why he dropped the second one on Nagasaki um, after, you know, basically the target had been neutralized, right? Um, well, I think Professor Kuznick uh, was basically saying that Japan had already been pretty much destroyed by firebombing all the major cities and that the only thing Japan wanted in return for a surrender was in order to keep their emperor, to have their emperor recognized, and that was something the United States was not willing to do. Yeah. Well, uh, Davis, thank you in particular for mentioning that uh, Gosar development. I'm going to take a look at that immediately after this uh, calling is over. And um, let's uh, let's regroup and discuss that at a later time. But now I'm going to okay. go to the next caller. And uh, D, go ahead. Hey, Michael, what's up? Hey. Hey. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure that the development, I, I do think it's interesting. And I will say, I'm glad uh, that you actually mentioned the rights response to it, because the right to me is just, you know, I know there's some progressives who kind of play footsies with the sort of, oh, there's an isolationist right. The right is basically playing off of whatever Biden does in, in terms of the opposite. So if he gets involved, then the isolationist right will emerge and say, this is why we're not part of the establishment. Biden's a deep state neocon. He's part of the establishment. If he does nothing, then the neocons will arise. I mean, I don't know if you saw Sean Hannity basically say today that NATO. Uh, yes, I did. I, I tweeted yeah, that. Yeah. So I, I, I thought it was important that you said that because there to me is a lot to be desired, left to be desired about establishment Democrat foreign policy, but there's too much credit given to the isolationist right. I mean, either, either whatever Biden does, they're going to crit critique it. I mean, yeah. And I, you know, I think you got to make a slight distinction, although there's some overlap between the isolationist right and the factions of the right that have been maligned as like overtly pro Putin or pro Putin sympathizers yeah. or whatever. Um, you know, the term isolationist itself is always used as a pejorative, right? Um, but yeah. that kind of – it even got more fraught with this kind of additionally layered accusation that it also means that you're actually actively pro-Putin. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but and I, I, if you're online and you deal with kind of like these more esoteric right-wing – yeah thinkers let's say and writers and substackers and tweeters and whatever i mean there is there is a small contingent of people who actually are sympathetic to putin and russia i would say from the standpoint of they think that he's like 
the last bastion of traditional values and yeah. um, uh, even like ethnic uh, nationalism. Yeah. And uh, they think that he's like a rational actor. Um, I, I think that's really a theory that they invented in their own minds to like have like an edgy little take on politics. Uh, I don't think really any of that's a true description of Putin. I think, you know, he's just kind of a, uh, I, I think they're imputing to him ideological commitments that probably don't hold up to much scrutiny. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, that contingent does exist, but they're just so marginal and so irrelevant in terms of the actual policy posture of the Republican party. That it's just it's just nonsensical for them to have been so dwelled upon, as though they they, they make a difference in anything. Um, well, well, there's a difference to me to me. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. There's a difference no, to me ahead. too between libertarians who, even with the cultural war stuff, I actually think libertarians are principled. The people I get frustrated with is when people talk about, for example, the certain leftists who you know are prominent. I don't want to throw shade at any of them, but they know uh, who... You can if you want. I mean, this is a safe uh, space I mean, for you would, to throw I shade. Would, I would mainly say, I mean, I know you get lumped in with the Greenwald and Taibbi types, and I, I've seen your yeah. work kind of as different, but I think that sometimes leftists often will say, well, the Tucker sort of American conservative um, group, Claremont Institute, you know, that type of right, the paleocon right, has this commitment and we can't lie with them, and I'm saying that that's not like a commitment, a commitment they actually have. And if they do have a commitment to not get involved, it's not because they oppose war like progressives do. It's because they actually do support Putin. So I don't think libertarians support Putin. I think, the, you know, the, the paleocon right. Well, you know, I think I think the more important dynamic on the right as of now, and I, I think what you're saying is true to some degree, um, but, you know, from, from what I observed, there was growing skepticism on the right about intervention against Russia, right? Because they don't think that it's actually a paramount enemy. Um, they think that the, a lot of the, the demonization of Putin was overblown, which it was. I mean, this is also, in a way, a byproduct of like the kind of uh, reordering of American uh, political allegiances that was brought about by Russiagate. Um, but for a number of reasons, they, you know, they, they, they don't agree anymore with the kind of long-standing orthodoxy of U.S. foreign policy being marshaled adversarially against Russia. Um, but, they, but that's because, <laughs> so far as I can tell, they wanted to be instead marshaled against China. So, so you know, for all the uh, pretenses they make about the corruptions of the military-industrial complex or the deep state or what have you, I mean... If all you're doing is kind of shifting resources to a new foreign enemy, I'm sorry, but the military industrial complex and all these other vested interests that you're claiming are so nefarious, they're going to have just as much, if not more, of a field day in uh, working against China. So I think actually a key dynamic now is that it's dawned on them that, you know, actually getting involved in Ukraine to the extent that we're involved, meaning, you know, flooding weapons in or punishing Russia, that's also a proxy to wage a Cold War against China, because it is true that China seems to have been uh, tacitly supportive of this invasion. There was just an article tonight in the New York Times that I saw 
uh, where at least, you know, the claim is that U.S. I mean, I, and I'm usually so reflexively skeptical of any anonymous U.S. intelligence. Um, but, you know, given that they were kind of, you know, it, uh, partially at least vindicated in their projections about the timing of this invasion, you have to put more stock in it now, unfortunately. Um, but anyway, the, the report was that uh, at the Olympics, uh, when Putin went for that big uh, meeting with with Xi at the uh, you know head of the opening ceremony and was the featured guest of Xi at at, at this um, you kind know, of Olympics confab, um, you know, uh, uh, Russian plans were essentially communicated for the invasion and they agreed to not do it until after uh, the Olympics were over. Um, so you know, given now, uh, given now, it seems more and more incontrovertible that there is this um, either tacit or overt, you know, some combination of the two alliance between Russia and China. Now the American right, you know, who are saying, you know, let's stop obsessing about Russia and focus on China. Now, like, their interests have converged. So they're going after China. You know, they're fulfilling that new goal of theirs by um, getting on board with the kind of war fervor uh, in relation to Ukraine. And they also that, that's the kind of the, the bite-sized version of what I and, see. And one last thing. I think, one, well, one, definitely you're right in terms of that. I mean, Tucker Carlson had a prominent guest who said he wants to dance on the thrones of uh, Chinese skulls. I think his name's Jesse Kelly. And then Yeah, I recall that. Yeah. And then the other thing, too, is I think, I mean, we can talk about Biden, but Biden's poll numbers are, are, aren't good. And initially the right... I think the right probably started to see, because even people like Tucker did a backtrack, they probably started to see, okay, our messaging on Russia, even if Americans aren't pro-war people, we can't be overtly pro, seen as pro-Russia, because all the major people have done a turn on Russia. The people who were kind of in the first week being like, eh, is Putin being so bad? They've all done a turn on everything. So that's all I wanted to say. Thank you for taking my call, man. All right. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Uh, then uh, we're going to go to one final caller here, and that is Rena. Go ahead, Rena. Rena, are you there? Uh, you have to unmute if so. Hello, Mike. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Would you be able to speak a little bit closer to your uh, microphone or phone, or, or you're uh, you're not you're a little unclear? Yeah, certainly. Um, one one one. Uh, first, I want to say I really appreciate the way you stick your neck out and aren't afraid to leave it out on several issues, which you you probably are aware of much better than I am. Uh, but you know that kind of integrity. And I have I have a question about something uh, with regard to Ukraine. I'm hearing now that Zelensky wants to join the EU. Yes. Yeah. Have any impression? As well, he submitted an application. Yeah. Well, what? Why? And what would that do for him? And I don't pretend to be an authority on the EU, but. Right. And I cannot imagine that Ukraine meets those requirements any more than it meets the supposed requirements to join NATO. I know that's a 
insight into that. Why, why would, do you think the EU would consider it, and what would Ukraine gain from it, if anything? Well, um, the more Western-oriented factions within Ukraine politics have long been in favor of uh, EU accession. Right, so it would just be one component of this kind of wider push to integrate with Europe and uh, disintegrate, so to say, with Russia. Uh, Russia. Um, but you're right that that you know the there's a lot of considerations with Ukraine in terms of systemic corruption and uh, in terms of the um, war, you know the. A state of war that was existent even prior to this invasion in terms of the Donbass that made uh, their potential admission to the EU uh, highly questionable. I think the ploy now on Zelensky's part, it's a pretty clever one from his own self-interest, is to oh, – actually, no, I take that back. I don't think it is clever for a reason I'll explain in a second. Um, I think what he's hoping is that you know, given the sort of – uh, intense emotional uh, dynamic that's at play here with the invasion, that the EU is just going to bypass its ordinary kind of adjudicatory process for admissions and just kind of admit them <laughs> uh, forthwith as like a symbolic gesture, um, which, you know, seems to me to be actually another point of escalation here because it hundred it flatly contradicts what Putin has at least said are his criteria to achieve a cessation of hostilities, meaning Ukraine must retain neutral status. Well, I don't know if the EU membership necessarily um, is the same red line for Putin as a NATO membership would be. I, I doubt it actually, but it's still one move toward one move away from the neutral status that Putin is demanding must be maintained for his for him to be satisfied about Ukraine's you know positioning geopolitically um, so yeah no I, I think it's a it's Zelensky saying look expedite our admission into the EU if you're so if you're so sincere about wanting to defend us as you claim you are um, toss aside all the roadblocks that might have otherwise prevented our admission and uh, demonstrate Western leaders that you really are, you know, that you put your money where your mouth is. Um, so, you know, I think it's, I, I think it's like antithetical to some kind of diplomatic resolution being achieved. But at the same time, it, it does kind of um, make these Western leaders um, accountable for like the um, logical implications of their rhetoric about Ukraine being so vital and being such a, uh, being so heroic and how they want to do everything they can to uh, everything they possibly can to prevent it from being, you know, subjugated by Russia. Um, anyway, that that's, that's my read on it, but you're right that, you know, if, it, it would be un, radically unprecedented for the EU to admit a member under these circumstances. And it really would, it would be uh, really an emotional kind of solidar, uh, act of solidarity. And um, 
the, uh, the implications probably wouldn't be so uh, thought out. So, yeah, that's my, that's my reading on it. A lot of those out there. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I do. I do feel that I know something about Brexit because I I watch a lot of George Galloway shows. Yeah. And it it has, in my opinion, been very much unfairly categorized as a bunch of racists in Britain uh, wanting to kick all the foreigners out of their country. In the same way, in this country, everybody right. who voted for Trump must be a racist who wants to the border. It's a lot more complicated than that in both, both instances. And I, I think the Brexit in a lot of ways, and I think Trump voting in a lot of ways, has a hell of a lot more to do with economics, with have and have not. So that's my editorial, I think. But anyway, this, this tweet says, a U.S. military report started in 2018 under President Trump says that the Brexit re- referendum was an info war first step for Putin with the goal of weakening and destabilizing the European Union. So, right. we talked about that. Here we are again with Putin being all-powerful, you know, the, the last thing we heard was that the Canadian truckers thing was Russia-inspired. You know, Trump's victory was supposedly Russian disinformation or info wars or whatever. Now, and I've never heard this anywhere before, that Brexit had anything to do with well. Yeah, well, Rena, let me just let me just cut you off there because I, I I am aware of what you're talking about and uh, want to unfortunately, end this room somewhat uh, quickly, but we'll, we'll, we won't go to one more caller after you, um, Prakash. Uh, but, you know, for years now, I mean, this is not new, actually. There has been a sort of mirror image version of Russiagate, like a mini Russiagate in the UK, not anywhere near as intense, obviously, or as kind of all-encompassing or as um, shocking in its kind of core claims. But nonetheless, there has been a narrative that was intentionally brewed within the UK that uh, Russia was deploying its information warfare prowess to uh, trick the um, the voters in like the industri- deindustrialized north of England to vote for Brexit, and a lot of journalists, um, including this woman Caroline Codwaller, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, she has a Welsh name. For the Guardian, you know, wrote a lot of stories about supposedly this um, profound financial entanglement between certain um, financiers of the official Brexit campaign and uh, the Russian state, or at least Russian kind of oligarchic interests. And it was a lot of kind of spurious dot connecting in the same way that you saw in the U.S. with um, Russiagate, Um, but. All, all the same, you know, this this narrative has been around for a while, and um, it, it kind of all goes into this uh, broader ideological conflict, ideological conflict that supposedly the West was pitted in against Putin, which is that he's like this saboteur of liberal democracy or something, 
and the U.S. is the the savior of liberal uh, democracy, and um, you know, so Putin's like funding all these insurrectionists, and you know, he's uh, sowing division all over the place because he wants to weaken the West. Now, does Putin want to weaken the West? I mean, probably. I don't think he can, he likes the West very much. Uh, nonetheless, I mean, this uh, constant drive to attribute every uh, outcome in uh, the U.S. or Canada or Western Europe to uh, the, to the kind of devious designs of Russia. It, it, it's like a, you know, it's a cliche at this point, and often it's not actually substantiated uh, by the facts to any any persuasive degree. Um, all right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Rena. Thank you. Stay safe in Poland. All right. I will try. And uh, last caller is going to be uh, Prakash. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, go ahead. Uh, Prakash, if you're there, you uh, have to unmute. If you're not aware, it's the bottom. It's a button in the Hello. bottom right. Yep. Yes, I can. Go ahead. Okay. Let's say. Russia does invade Ukraine. What does Putin think will the well? They have already. They have already, right? (laughs) So, what does Putin think the Ukrainian people will will respond to him? Because it's clear they don't like Russia. They don't like Putin. It seems like civil war is going to break out. So, what does Putin expect to happen in the coming weeks, months, years with the Ukrainian people? Well, I mean, far be it from me to claim any direct insight into the inner workings of Putin's mind. I mean, I really kind of despise that genre of punditry. Um, you know, that said, I mean, I, there, there was, in the way a, a lot of people characterize it anyway, uh, a low-grade civil war happening in Ukraine regardless. I mean, that's what was going on in these eastern provinces of uh, Luhansk and uh, Donetsk, where it was, you know... Uh, People who uh, separatists who were fighting against the central government of Ukraine with some Russian backing, yeah, but I mean the fighters were themselves Ukrainian, oftentimes, right, or the bulk of the time. Um, so it's not like um, Ukrainian civil society, the, the the country over, was just settled prior to this invasion. Um, you know, I don't know what Putin wants. I don't even want to even offer a guess because I think it's. There's so much unpredictability here, right? I mean, it's so chaotic. It's a hot war zone. The, the intensity of the fighting is escalating by the day. Um, you know, clearly there he he's taking over cities. I mean, he uh, and I saw a report today from the New York Times of, of a journalist who's apparently on the ground about uh, talks having been conducted between uh, you know the Russian military and the uh, city administrators of this um, uh, this, this city Kherson uh, where they're going to install some sort of a, a military administrator um, I don't know I mean it, it seems crazy for him to occupy the whole of the country or even uh, I don't know if he's going to go f- uh, send ground troops or occupying forces all the way west like uh, Lviv, um, but it seems like he's he's looking to, to occupy the country, you know, you know, overthrow the government, and um, you know that's the only inference I have at this point from what his conduct suggests. Uh, so, but I mean, the, the reason why 
I really had to step back and reevaluate my analysis of the situation when it was when the, first, when the invasion first happened. Is because, you know, the, the I guess sort of an underlying reason why I was skeptical of the intelligence assessments and the uh, fevered prognostications about the imminent invasion was because it seemed to me strategically crazy for Putin to do, um, unless something has gone unhinged with him that we're not fully aware of. And I don't want to get into any kind of like psychoanalytic diagnosis, um, but you know it's possible that there's something just that's uh, become unglued with him, and he's not thinking uh, rationally. Um, but I don't know. I mean, that's all the more reason not to uh, overconfidently speculate. Um, anyway, uh, thank you, uh, Prakash, and thank you for everybody who listened in. Uh, as I mentioned. At the top, I, uh, I am going to be en route to uh, Poland tomorrow. The uh, agenda for what I'm going to be up to is still a bit up in the air. So if you have any suggestions along those lines, if you know, know people in Poland who might want to facilitate something of interest, uh, get in touch with me over email or uh, DM or what, what have you. And um, I will uh, report back in the next few days about uh, what I find. Uh, All right, everybody. Uh, Thank you for, again, for listening, and uh, we'll do it again soon. Take care.